Welcome to the 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast, a retrospective. Hi folks, and welcome to episode 183. This is part two of the London by Night book. Uh, today we have uh, Mike, Chris, and, and Bob is here as well. Somehow we managed to smuggle in uh, a tin can on a string for Bob uh, so that he's going to be able to uh, to join us. Uh, you guys might notice some irregularities in in the quality of, uh, of today's podcast as it goes in and out. There's only so much we can do uh, without having any actual studio set up with, uh, with Bob and where he is, which right now is a hospital room. Uh, but uh, I kind of wanted to get things going uh, right off the bat. With, with where we picked up at the end of our last podcast, which was the start of Chapter 3. So Chapter 3 is the character section. And in the book, as uh, for those of you that are following along with us, we'll be able to see it, it breaks it down by clan uh, and, and kind of gives you the, the important movers and shakers in, uh, in London at this time. So to kind of get things going off, um, I asked everybody to kind of grab a couple of characters that that they saw uh, of interest to them and uh, and and kind of speak on it so uh, my question to you Mike is uh, is who stuck out who stuck out to you today um there's there's a lot we got a lot of a lot of really strong characters here um I like Stephen Lenoir I gotta I gotta speak on him um, and we definitely have to give some attention to mr. Abraham Mellon as yes well. Definitely. Yeah, that's 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 a movie I'd watch with all of its sequels for sure. Okay, uh, tell us about. Uh, would you just... say Stephen Lenoir? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll try to keep this in a box. Um, Stephen Lenoir is the only Lasombra in the character section. Um, he's a Lasombra anti-tribute. Um, he is uh, a businessman, at least in his mortal life. Uh, he gets. Picked by a elder, we'll call it, um, who happens to have a marker from Prince Mithras of London, right? So the way Stephen ends up in the city is essentially that his sire is, for reasons that are not entirely clear, going around and gathering his children, and he, he, he leaves Stephen in London, says, Mithras, please repay me the favor that you owe me uh, by taking care of my, uh, my child. Sire never comes back, right? Um, and so Stephen first is kind of ostracized, and then as he, he proves his worth and he, he stays around, demonstrates a level of loyalty, he comes to be a sort of clearinghouse for uh, all of the new kindred coming into Mithras's London. Um, his, his popularity rises and falls, and with it, um, so does his uh, importance, his, his function, we'll call it, um, in the city. It's a little bit strange that we don't see him working too closely with any of the sheriffs or seneschals that are mentioned, but nevertheless, and we'll see a little bit later on in the book, he's important for this plot and that plot and to this character and that character, and he has all of these little relationships, very potent for any um, storyteller or character. Yeah, or definitely. Player, I'm sorry. He's also um, he's uh, he's kind of new to the game of being the the shunned anti tribute in town, uh, yeah. especially from the La Sombra side. Uh, this is kind of the uh, the first place where we start seeing the uh, the tides of the of the Sabat uh, 
having an effect on on the courts of Avalon. And it's with this guy just kind of being set up to the side and, and totally kind of do your own thing. We got our eyes on you, but we don't have any reason to say get the hell out of here yet. The other thing, and this is this is my my Cambro coming out, but I gotta I gotta bring it I just, up. Came bro up. That's what you're here for. <laughs> Steven is is real strange, right? Based on his backstory, again, he's a he's a businessman who spends a little bit of time with his admittedly elder Lissandra sire, and he gets uh, dropped off in London, kind of to stay safe. And then you look at this man's stats. <laughs> okay, he is, a ma- he is a master of the blade. He is a shadow even in darkness. Um, he is uh, lethal at the level that I would have expected him to be a, a sheriff or a hound by any measure. Um, and yet his, his background says to me he should be maybe a, a financial wizard or, or extremely well connected in the city, especially among young vampires, because of you know all that he's done for him. It even calls out the fact that part of the reason why he serves his function is because you might want a young up and comer to owe you a favor later on. Hmm. I don't I don't see that reflected in the way that he's statted out. This this dude is a killer. <laughs> so you're saying that uh that he's he's a bit higher than the average character in here as far as the stats go? Yeah. Yeah. Um hmm. well and not just higher than the average character, but higher in specific things, right? Higher in areas that is background does not describe as being important but again if if i'm the st uh this guy's my swiss army knife i'm I'm gonna put some spackle on that and add some flavor he's he can serve a lot of purposes yeah he's probably definitely the first person that uh that new characters coming into the barony are going to run into or into the into the courts for sure sure tell me about uh tell me about mr melon yeah yeah yeah. Um, Abra- Abraham is a he's a librarian when his life starts. He literally just works for a scholar, right? Now this is the Renaissance, um, but he's 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 bored because he's smarter than his boss, and he spends all his time organizing books. Um, fast forward a little bit, he's getting older in his life. He starts a correspondence with John D and some other less reputable characters, and one of those less reputable characters turns out to be his sire. Um, it's a Malkavian, uh, and the fella is weird and creepy and dark. I think his name is like Primus Magus or Primus Magister. At some point after their correspondence begins, he invites Abraham to, to come to a ritual. And at this ritual, (laughs) Abraham balks. He recoils at the idea that he might be drinking blood. We know where this is going. He ends up getting embraced. And this guy is... A, a virtuoso, like a a prodigy of thaumaturgy. He's he's brilliant, and he starts developing his own weird path of magic. Yeah, go ahead, yes, Bob. Bob. Nah, nah, he ain't. Why, why are you throwing up that? That's bullshit. The way this dude's written. Nah, nah, nah. Hold up, hold up. Right, we got my time. We, we understand something about Melon's character. This is that crackheaded Malkavian idea that somehow makes it across the table that doesn't do any good to any plot anywhere ever written because it doesn't make sense. It makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> let's let's look at the let's look at it by the numbers. You talk about some John D was not just somebody. He was a Bonnie Sagus of the Order of Hermes. He was a to-do person. 
right? A freaking mage. And this mage in the time, we know about the Omen War, right up to this point. And John D's a guy walking around that the Tremere are holding as a paragon, right? A paragon <laughs> of the Order of Hermes. And so he's like, John D's cool. I hang out with him. That's cool. All right, so you knew John D. You're talking to John D. And this is, and then what? There's some weird ritual your sire comes up with? And then, like, you're you're somehow heralded as a, how are you a paragon because you knew somebody? That's like saying because I ran into, I don't know, uh, um, Prince, you know, Purple Rain Prince, that I'm now God's gift to music because, you know, I could do what he did because by association I met him. It's, it's what, is, what the hell is this? Then look at the writing further for it. The ritual that makes him, his sire made a ritual that went so complex and so convoluted that when it was done, he would stab him with a dagger and condemn him to insanity in a world of occult and magic. <laughs> but, but, instead, but instead, somehow, mystically, Melon ends up shanking the sire with the dagger and leaving him an invalid in the dark that later on, when he reads about Diablo, he goes back and does that very thing bum, bum, bum. he didn't he didn't even read about it he, the book said it came to him as naturally as breathing or something like that he went sure, from sure. refusing to drink blood in a ritual to becoming a vampire to being a master diablerist in a, the space of a paragraph but wait there's more this is the same john mellon that because he can obfuscate and look like John D. He intuitively, when he looks like John D, <laughs> able to use thaumaturgy the way it was meant to be used. So amazing. So good. He's just, oh, it's just, you know, if he used it like the way a sire taught, had him do it, it's too confusing. But if he happens to look like John D, oh, duck to water. It's just a natural thing for him. I'm like, yeah, okay. All right. But don't worry. He had to flee, didn't he? Because he's yep, walking around looking yep. like John D. And instead of the Tremere fleeing from him, they were like, hey, buddy, let's have a conference. You're a Order of the Hermes, Bonnie Sagas. Yeah, Bonnie Sagas, Bonnie Sagas. Yeah, <laughs> Bonnie Sagas. Let's go have a talk and chew, make a sandwich, and do some magic. And he's like, John D. is to leave now because John D. is intimidated. John D. doesn't want to deal with this right now. Later, I'll, I'll sign your autographs later. And he takes off like that dude from the Umbrella Academy off of Netflix. When he decides to have a cult, every time the cult comes around, he has to flee because he's not a cult leader. It does the same thing. And for what reason? Wait, folks, there's more. How does he avoid having to deal with have, being John D? He needs to be John D to learn thaumaturgy because he does these rituals, these complex, strange rituals. So instead, he decides to go to his haven, but astral travel. He yep. astrally yep. projects. For one of the first times the book just goes, he uses a power to cheat a condition. Like, never before do I remember them being so blatant with a it. like, it's just It's just called astral perception. They don't try to sell it. There's like he uses astral perception to go to the bottom of the locks of Scotland to perform these complex rituals in private to learn from there because just oh so much trouble to do it in public like he's being watched all the time by everybody in House Tremere <laughs> to learn what he does. This character is ridiculous. That's what that's what makes it beautiful, Bob. It is beautifully ridiculous. I think we can all agree that there is definitely ridiculous going on here. Uh, just to have a Malkavian. Uh, here's the part. This is why 
Mike said it best. This is the movie I got to see. And the, it's the movie you got to see because you imagine, like, this dude is an occult specialist and his life grew to, like, 60 years old. And then he gets called up by, uh, by no, no, no. Uh-uh. He gets called up by John D, right? And they start writing letters. And he's like, I like this guy. He seems to know more than I do. Maybe there's something going on. But first, let me check out this other Magister Prime who goes in. He does one ritual. He's like, this is hot bullshit. I'm not drinking your blood. And then the guy dominates him. He has to dominate him to continue all these rituals. And then eventually embraces him. Because that's the fucking madness of a milk. And, and, that's, and that's fine because it fits with melon. But understand the logic. Melon was already, his background was okay up to the point of his embrace by his sire and it being some crazy convoluted thing. And I can digest that and go, man, how crazy. Especially if Melon comes out of it going, oh, that was insane. I don't know how to do it. And maybe his letters to John D was John D trying to help him out, warning him about that guy. You would help. Right. And I could get behind that. And then that's a cool background. Like it was a guy from Order of Hermes warning you about a dude who was not a Tremere ever. And that's kind of his point. And John D later on does become Tremere. And so you can kind of see that. But then, no, no. It's just crazy town. Uh, DJ, was there was there anybody who stuck out to you? Yeah, I had two characters myself that I quite enjoyed. Uh, the first will actually be Holland Bay. And he actually happens to be a follower set. Um, what makes them pretty interesting, especially considering our setting book, is that you have a mortals antiquity dealer who was brought up believing in the romanticism in terms of like Aladdin. He's like, I'm going to rub that lamp and someday a genie's going to come out of it. It never <laughs> happens for him. It never happens for him until the day he discovers the scroll of Nephron Ka. And him, once again, just kind of playing and in, in, <laughs> playing in, in with his toys, goes like, hey, I'm going to go ahead and give this a try. And whatever happens, happens. Lo and behold, Something does happen. Um, he performs the ritual, reading the words off the scroll itself. And next thing you know, my dude is getting the blood sweats. And I must once again state this guy is mortal, and yet he's having blood sweats. Um, he comes to after having the blood sweats and recognizes that he is now in control of Nefrinka the mummy. And Nefrinka is very <laughs> hungry. There's a blood tithe that has to be paid um, to keep Nefrinka up and running. Much as I was mentioning at one point or another, he's like a magic card with a cumulative upkeep. There's oh, like blood, <laughs> blood has to be paid for this mummy to be up and active and be controlled. Um, but what happens is he captures the attention of the local Sedite, um, and their cult is up and running, going like, hey, man, this guy's got a mummy under his belt. And we're like, we should definitely get in contact with him. They go ahead and do. They embrace the board. They, they embrace the poor bastard. And in the process of doing so, they're like, well, how are we going to control him when he's got a mummy behind him? Uh, lo and behold, they, they sack him. They, they put the blood bond on him, and they're like, great, now we got control of him, we got control of the money. During this period in time, it only adds to his story because the way they pitch set to him, he also feels romanticized by the story of the Dark God himself. Um, and it's at this point that he actually starts caring more about you know, the background. He starts getting upset at the, the British for the sack of Alexandria. He starts becoming more involved with the culture itself and why he starts investing into museums, artifacts, more so than he ever did before. So he's actually living out that dream. Um, during this period in time as well, though, he's pretty much walking around with like the like he's got the, the the God mode cheat code on because at any given moment in time, especially during this period where you hear stories about the mummy being unleashed on anyone who who dares to sack up upon their 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 treasure hoard, he is the living reason behind it. If something happens that he does not agree with, especially when it comes to um, certain artifacts being taken from museums or sites, he'll unleash Nefren upon them. 
Now, while that's all fine and good, what makes this character also amazing and tragic at the same time is once again, that cumulative upkeep is happening and he's starting to lose control of that mummy where it's been a couple of years that he's had him under his belt. Um, that mummy is only supposed to take 10 bodies, 30 bodies start going missing. Now you have something behind you. And for this type of character at this moment in time for the setting, um, it's pretty cool to me. It kind of romanticizes once again, that story of things that are happening in the background, supernatural versus science, the, the culture of um, that, which is not, you know, the, the Isle of Great Britain versus anything else. And uh, he brought attention to it. Um, I don't know if anyone felt the same regarding this character. Does anyone have any thoughts about it, Bob? Yeah, absolutely. I feel that uh, the very concept of uh, the mythical monsters, you know, like vampires, Frankenstein, werewolf, that this guy fits that motif of mummy very well. That, uh, you know, I honestly didn't know how you would do that in World of Darkness, but it's a perfect storm to fit someone like that in London, right at the height with the obsession of Egyptian anything at this point. Uh, especially with the occult and, and the renaissance of the occult they're going through right now, uh, and with the obsession of even India and their mysticism. Anything mystic was allowed to go on, which is how, to, to begrudgingly check myself, that's why Crowley fits. It's because it's in an era where you can kind of see that going on. Basically, bullshit floats and everybody wants to believe in the, in the other, that there's some other power going on. But when it comes to the mummy, that theme of somebody going around and just kind of, well, cursed items, right? You steal an item and you shit enough, mummy comes and collects. It's kind of cool. There's a ton of monster films on it, let alone I'm glad. I, I enjoyed reading it and seeing it that exists in this book. That's uh, I, I agree for the exact same reason. The idea that this guy uh, just has a pocket mummy that he throws at people whenever they try to take his awesome treasures. Like, how dare you insult my culture? Pocket mummy. And uh, and this thing just kind of lumbers out and just <laughs> like maims entire like uh, crowds of people with little and no effort. It's one thing they don't really uh, they don't really go into super big detail on, but the the power of this thing has to be amazing, right? Uh, just for the fact that they that it, it can get revenge on all of his enemies when he's captured and uh, and seduced by these followers of Set. Um, it's a uh, it's at the the will of his mummy and, and all this other stuff. Like these are this thing has the the power to decimate, um, you know small armies and when i say small i mean like no more than 30 but it's small it's still extremely <laughs> powerful right <laughs> no definitely um yeah that, that's what makes that character you know quite an entry in this book the other character i chose was malkavian by the name of julia parr and what makes her fascinating in the study as well is that it plays against gender roles as well as identity and what is expected out of you versus not um, and as we had spoken earlier in part one, we had spoken about class of those who have and have not as well as racial tensions. Now we're talking about gender tensions as well. And she espouses that because it's it's a, it, it's a woman who hates that particular aspect of society. And she's always trying to fight against it. And what makes it also tragic, especially from not even a Malkadian perspective, and perhaps it's just fitting she fell into the clan, but in terms of just the character itself, she tries to find a way out. Now, how does she try to find a way out is that she figures if she doesn't have to exist as herself anymore, she could come back as whatever she wants to be. And what's the only way out? Attempt to commit suicide. And she doesn't do it once, twice. She does it on a couple of multiple attempts there, so much so that her father starts becoming worried about the situation. And he starts even deciding to marry her off to someone below her station because she feels that having a partner is going to help anchor her in life. Um, 
and that temporarily works, but what it, it, it doesn't do is it doesn't protect you from a potential sire who's looking your way, who notices your struggles. And um, her sire definitely notices that. And in that particular case, he, he gives her the out. He's like, live the life that you want to live. But at the same token, you know, here's what, here's a new game that you're going to play. And in that process, they, they fake her death. She finally gets the mortal death that she was seeking for um, and starts to wander about. She dresses according to her station, however she feels like it. Um, at one point, this captures the attention of Lady Anne and, um, you know, Julia Parr's OCD in this particular case and her dedication to task eventually lands her the, the role of Sheriff of North London. Um, and so for that reason alone, I thought that uh, she she struck me there. I, I think she's an important character. And important because of the the dichotomy of the of the gender roles in this setting and and kind of how she mm-hmm. she jumps in the face of that it, it it's important because it gives hope right that uh, that you don't have to play the uh the stuck uh servitude wife in, in this it, it says you know it, it literally just writes out for you in the vampiric world uh the world becomes your oyster you know no longer do you have to to kind of just sit back and uh, and kind of take a back seat to the men. So about her, I, I enjoy the character as well. Um, the whole aspect of being a sheriff in a different capacity. She's not your typical, I'm the baddest walking. Um, it must be a very unique way that she handles um, covering the turf. Also, um, got to remember London is uh, separated into specific territories that govern. I believe she's in, is she the northern yeah, she's sheriff territory. Yeah, that means that clearly there's another, right? They don't. Uh, I don't recall who they named in the book. I do remember reading obscurely a short story a long time ago that does get into a different sheriff that is a bully boy handling the sabbat, yep. which is rather interesting. Uh, but uh, I enjoy her in this book for the social graces. For instance, with the Victorian era style of social hierarchy, which we've already talked about, it's very interesting to see that somebody like that can actually hold people to boons, bring them in front of the prince to justice and, you know, defend the traditions without necessarily having to do it with a stake. That's uh, that makes it a very unique, uh, unique character. I think a challenging one at that. I, I agree. I, I, uh, it's so rare that, that you see the soft skills sheriff. Usually the, the sheriff comes with a, with a heavy stick and they're there to do business. It's a, uh, a soft skilled sheriff is uh, can still get things done. It's important that, uh, that 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 gets represented. I agree. Got any hot characters? So, uh, as far as hot characters go, uh, Shri Sansa is a character I rather enjoy. Oh, um, out of this book, um, for <laughs> many different reasons. Now, none, none other than the fact that he represents sort of a social, um, another social stigma that goes on during this time. It's uh, England's obsession uh, with the mysticism of India which is sort of misrepresented. I mean, yeah. I believe at this yeah. time, uh, Britain's, it's, it's an empire. It always has been. And it's straight up buying parts of India, like just taking it from them, you know, in, in a legal and we'll say maybe a dominant way. Um, I didn't go all into the political detail. What we do know at this time, land is, is at a premium and they're doing just what they always have done. And Sri Sansa represents somebody who comes over to London to kind of experience the empire, to kind of see what it's like. He's affluent of money and realizes that it doesn't matter how much money he has he's not british he's not part of the status quo he's not someone who they recognize as being owed money and because of that he ends up becoming a simple rake right 
he can't he can't he really can't stand it. Like he's out there and he and he's rich according to if he if he went home, he's like super royal. But over here it doesn't matter. And because of that, um, he ends up diving into the occult. The only thing he had going for him is to play up the India stuff. And to to look into and it's their misunderstanding of what they do in India, and he catches on to, with their yep. religion and everything, and he milks it and decides to gain friends and affluence and only the attractive women that he's looking to get <laughs> does he does he frequently have a means to show them the best of rituals for what he has going on. And we know what it is, right? You know, if you're gonna it's one of those things where if you're giving the short end of the stick, well, might as well make do with what you got. And that's definitely what he does. But in, if folks don't get the term rake, he basically is whining and dining everybody, soaking in the attention and being and settling for the simplest uh, attention he could get when he's someone used to being able to rub elbows with the most affluent and powerful. And the affluent and powerful are like, nah, not so much, not here. Well, diving into the occult like that, he draws the attention of the Tremere because he's so good at bullshitting his own mysticism. Even the Tremere don't have a full understanding of what it's what it's like in India with the occult <laughs> mysticism there. That when they his sire pulls him to the side and sees what he could do, he realizes this guy's full of shit. Sri Sansa can't do what is he doing? But in his anger and embarrassment, instead of killing him, he pretty much points out the fact that this guy has a hunger to get power, to to do so, to climb that up. And thaumaturgy is something he's very interested in, in fact desperate. And because of that, his sire agrees to teach him and take him under his wing. Uh, because the guy's BSing skills help socially, later on he'll come into his own thaumaturgically, thus it makes him a good chill. And so they pull him in for that. I can't think of a single Tremere that is not uh, super beneficial when, when, when they're trying to climb that ladder to have a right-hand man who can convince the best of them uh, of anything that he's talking about. I just, I just kind of wonder what it was like when the sire came over and it was time for him to like, like, oh, let me, uh, let bring all your, bring your wife and your mistresses and, and we'll show you the sacred tantric yoga practices, you know, because that's, that's the feeling I get out of this guy. Like he is, he's the, the, the eyebrow raise guru right now, right? Where you're kind of like, what is he even talking about? He's like, <laughs> first to find your center, we must make out for 20 minutes. <laughs> but what's awesome about that, though, is, and I think it highlights here, and one of the things that we spoke about in the core book, or rather the source book for Victorian Age Vampire in general, it's it's extremes of black and white, right? That's what Victorian era, that, that's what highlights this, this setting, is that it's just an extreme of color, there is no gray. And so speaking about that, we take a look at Tremere, we know... We know what Tremere look like when they have power. We've heard of all the Tremere's who wield all their spells. We've heard of those that got converted. But we rarely, if at all, hear about those when you miss. You always got those hits, but there's always got to be a miss somewhere. And what do you do with those Tremere's that are missed and still are embraced? Those Tremere's still have to produce. They're still part of that pyramid. They're still part of that hierarchy. One way or another, they had to contribute to that, that bottom dollar. And if my dude is good at accounting or whatever it is that he's doing, bringing in people to drink that Kool-Aid, then so be it. But that's where you start seeing use of those Tremere who may or may not be thaumaturgically inclined, but have a niche somewhere. And that's what's going to make them cool. And for folks that are out there listening um, and have the opportunity to, this is a great example of a Tremere once again who doesn't innately have thaumaturgical powers, but he has to make it up somehow. And when you're building your character, he's the model for it. I definitely agree. Uh, did you guys get a, a chance to take a look at uh, at Doctor Timothy? Yeah. yeah so Doctor Timothy's kind of 
there's a there's there's a theme in the book. It goes over pretty extensively about how the Malkavians have have seized a hold of this idea of the of the New Age uh, philosophies of psychology and things like that. Doctor Timothy is almost kind of like the uh, the tip of the spear in this uh, this new paradigm. He uh, he haunts his own asylum, uh, which and and to say he haunts it is probably the best way to do that. This this guy has his own patients. He goes to see. He locks them up in this asylum. He he treats them, uh, and I say treats with full air quotes. Uh, <laughs> he, he treats them for all kinds of disorders. One of the most amazing things about him is um, generally when the court has a problem with somebody, they usually go to Dr. Timothy for treatment, which usually means they get stuck in the basement. And uh, and he gives them the most aggressive treatments, uh, which he usually reserves for Sabbat, Malkavians, right? The uh, what the, the coolest part about this, what I really dig about this character 100%, is that when he comes across dementation, he, he begins to view the Malkavian sickness, the, the mental break, as a transmutable disease that one person can give to another. So what he does is he, he tries to figure out how these guys are passing the sickness on to the next people and how to stop that. And he does that through what has to be the the worst uh, existing for an undead at this point. I, I can only imagine what happens down in the basement if it's not uh, an entire nighttime filled with screaming terrors uh, and, and all kinds of, uh, of fun, painful experiments with electrocution and otherwise. What were your guys' thoughts? thoughts. What, I, what I can tell you is that they, that's a cool character, but, but, and I guarantee you no one else thought of this yet, but I'm just going to point out as a segue and Easter egg. This guy has the exact same feel as the Dr. Gout mansion in Bloodlines, the PC game. If you guys recall, you go you go there to that portion of the mansion, right? I believe Nines on Rodriguez tips you off to go there. You encounter a doctor of the same caliber. Like, just the same tropic stereotype as Dr. Timothy here. And I, I find it pretty, pretty cool, actually, that that homage is kind of kept, right? What came first, the chicken or the egg type mentality? Because they're, they're, along, the, they're along the same lines. Like, that mansion is filled with a bunch of experiments of his, experimenting in dementation, most likely. Right, they don't have that necessarily in game. I recall unless there's a mod, and I'm missing it. it probably is a mod. But the point is, is that uh, just reading it again, I sat there and went, "Uh huh, all right, that's pretty nifty." And uh, <laughs> the character speaks to an entire. Well, they warn you, right? When he when he went through this in the beginning, and you go through the main book, and they talk about you know the Victorian age, they tell you the Malkavians have come in their prime. They've shifted from being these oracles to these psychologists. Yep. And the asylums are stomping around in playground. I love they have a character dedicated to just that. I agree. And I think one of the things, especially when you're speaking about homages to this, he very much reminds me of, well, the write-up for what they, and once again, since we, we read everything here at Vampire 25's VTDM, this is, this is pretty much homaging to the Malkovians out of Requiem. Because they speak about how that bloodline is, is passed over and no one knows whether or not it's a sickness, whether it's contact with the sharing of blood or otherwise. So I thought it was pretty interesting. And I wouldn't be surprised if, if this write-up for, for Dr. Timothy, rather, um, is the reason that bloodline exists uh, within Requiem. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, man. Dr. Timothy is he is an archetypal um, horror movie villain to me. Um, 
now because <laughs> like like that dude from Reanimator, <laughs> just, just a, a, mean, a, an unhealthy obsession. <laughs> and he's so he's so vivid, like the way they describe him and the surroundings in his hospital, and the fact that he's a this this whole asylum is his domain, and he's even being legitimately a madman with his own afflictions and with his duties to the court. He's elevated it from some rundown hospital on the edge of town to the preeminent asylum in all of London. Right? Like, they, they say that. This dude is, is somehow utterly insane, utterly clinical, and masterfully um, structured in his ability to make progress on all of these goals, at least the ones that are realistic. Um, One of my favorite villains. Yeah, That's not yeah, a villain. Yeah. It's such a unique and an interesting character, in my opinion. This this dude, I, I, I can think of four or five ways I want to use him. I, I, my characters will be dealing with this guy for a month or two, just him, in the <laughs> city. It, it'd be great. <laughs> it'd be outstanding. Yeah, don't break the masquerade. Otherwise, we'll see you at the asylum. <laughs> oh. Man, uh, another thing that uh, that that took my interest, uh, jumping down into the sewers, uh, going into into Nosferatu territory, was uh, was Prince Fagan, and uh, and I hope I'm saying that right. And uh, he's a what this guy was. It, he's a he's a self-established prince of the East End, uh, where Mithras doesn't recognize his domain. He hasn't yet challenged it. Uh, so that's a, that's its own interesting concept all to itself. Now, generally nobody really cares about that neighborhood. It's uh it's poor, it's destitute. It's not really what you would call ripe pickings. Uh, so when this guy does take ownership of it or, or claim to take ownership of it and everyone just looks the other way, it mostly it's, it's probably due to the fact that they just don't want to deal with what's going on there anyways. But this guy has this weird slumlord Ebenezer Scrooge story to him. Where he uh, he he ends up uh, you know owning a, a ton of property out there and and he has like the full slumlord ideas. He uh, he rakes people in for more money than they can handle, boots them out when they can't handle it. You know extortion at the at the highest level to the point where a couple of elders take a look at it and they they do their elder games right. It's time to have a bet. Let's take away all of his money with our influence and see if he changes his ways and becomes a righteous person. And so, so they do that. Um, they, they use their influence to, uh, to make the man destitute. And, uh, and as he's destitute and he's groveling through the streets, uh, someone goes up and, uh, and you know, goes to uh, another vampire goes to feed on him and it goes too far. And immediately one of the elders has a step in, smash the shit out of this uh this guy who's uh who's who's feeding on him uh you know too much and then uh and then embraces him before he's ever had a chance to to conclude the 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 bet right and then the sire's yeah right and then the sire immediately says oh no but i've broken the tradition now i need to get out of town right and that just leaves him there so with almost little to no um explanation of What's happening? How anything works, and and why he's even here? He bolts on out, and Mithras just says, "You know what? I your sire's gone. Uh, we're not chasing you down, but you're not welcome uh, here right now. So get out of here." And immediately he he j- drops into the east end, you know, disappears into the sewers, and decides that he's gonna 
redo his life and fulfills the uh, the Nosferatu sire's uh, end of the obligation and and becomes a protector of these destitute people. This sounds like the most fucked up version of trading places I've ever heard. <laughs> That's what it is. That's exactly what it is. Prince Fagan played by Eddie Murphy. Yo. Yes. <laughs> That's what's happening here. But no, but I like this guy too. Um, you get the the image of menacing little ghoul children running around the city in circles doing his bidding and him chastising them for getting out of control. Um, like some twisted Oliver Twist thing? Right, right exactly, right? And it's <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's it's evocative of, of movies that make me feel warm inside. Man, I'm telling you, I, I adore this character because it's a, it's it's a piece of pie from the from the historical aspect because a lot of people are gonna see this book and just see it for the vampires, but when you consider the era they're living in, that it's like it's like the past is being sprung right into the future with what goes on, and that people are at an all time high, meaning there's not enough room for everybody in London to live in their own home and they're stacked on each other, and yeah. all these districts, the sea of people everywhere you go, and there's a definitive cast. There's a whole world with the underworld dealing with people who are impoverished. They have different jobs they could do and different things they can get involved in. And to know that there's just this one guy walking around, working the kids to be a part of that that thieving pool, which was not uncommon, right? It's just highlighting there is a different, there's a seedy underworld. He's a part of it. And I, I enjoy it a lot. Um, it's even more so because they got, they got more than just movies you could watch to it. They got, you know, Ripper Street is a show you could watch and check it out to kind of get an idea of it. Um, let alone any Jack the Ripper movie in the right era, I'll show it to you too. Or you can play that Assassin's Creed, I forget which version, where they actually Syndicate. do London. Syndicate, yeah, that shows you exactly what all these factions are like and what it's like to run through a crowded street uh, with that there. That's easy captured with this uh, this book, with how they've wrote it. And when you add those elements together, that's why the Victorian age is awesome and would be fun to play through. Not because of the social distinction alone, but things are going to happen when you're that packed together and each borough in London becomes its own world when yep. you look at it that way. And this guy is just like, it's like a hat tip. Don't forget about us down below. Thank you, sir. And they, you know, they move on. And I think, I think it's perfect because of that. Um, one of the, uh, I, I'm staying on the Nosferatu train right now. Uh, one of my favorite characters. Uh, well, you know what? I'm just going to say it is my favorite is, is Violet Mary, the silent harpy. Uh, this is, <laughs> she's a, she's a Cleopatra, right? So, you know, she was beautiful, affluent, and, uh, and, and, and very capable, uh, young lady who had very promising prospects. Uh, unfortunately, one of the suitors whose heart she captured was a Nosferatu. And, and of course he embraced her, welcome to the, to the new life. And, and, and she was, she's tortured by it. How can she not be right? She was uh, she was suited by every amazing man in the in the town, only to be dragged down into the sewers where nobody wants her. But uh, but she doesn't hang up her dress and uh, and find the short way out of a long life. Uh, instead, what she does is uh, is she <laughs> she goes about and uh, and finds a knack for her skills. Her skill is that she knows etiquette better than anyone in this town, right? When it comes to being a prim and proper lady, she's got it down. And uh, and since she won't dare show her face on Elysium, instead, she haunts the shadows of Elysium. 
and uh, and keeps a prying eye as everyone behaves and then immediately uh, reports that information to the harpies. So they call her the silent harpy, uh, which to me is, is a brilliant concept. The fact that there's always that eye over your shoulder, which you always expect on an Elysium. Make no mistake, you always expect somebody's watching, uh, but you always figure you can you can dodge that here the literal walls have eyes and they are the most critical eyes it, to me that's uh that's the most amazing idea you never know who you're offending how or why uh when you're when you're not behaving properly on an elysium and that's for us harpy's hard no matter any way you look at it it's it's something that is always overlooked but when you have it it's, it's often fun to see played out because how do you Let's face it, to be front and center in a social role like that, such as Harpy, you expect it to be some attractive, rich asshole. Yep. Right? Just someone who's going to lord it over you. And oh, da, da, da. But when it is the Nosferatu who is lording it over you with station and doing it well, you don't have an easy out to dislike this person. And I think for a lot of people, you start getting messed up psychologically. Right? You're like, I mean, they're a hideous monster. Who are they to tell me what's good? But they set the trend. They're the prince's voice. They determine what's in and what's out. And I... Man, I don't got, oh, I'm just, maybe I do suck. I don't know what I can do. What do you do when the ugliest person in the room runs to the prince and goes, his shoes suck? Like, <laughs> really? Like, okay, like, damn it. How does that happen? But on a, on, a, on a better note, even the way Violet Mary's written it, that would be improper for her. She's not a tattletale. That's not what she does. She's someone who gets all the gossip to get the right picture to be the right word in the ear of the prince. And on behalf of the harpies is what it's, it's what she does and does it so well that she's someone just respected almost universally because she does that despite her meager beginnings. Yeah. And there's a certain credibility that comes when someone who can disappear or who could be sitting on your shoulder and you not know about it says that you did a thing, right? What it tells me is that she was so effective in her role that they just they, they gave her the title and then she wore it well because of her upbringing. Now, it made me when I when I read Violet goes to the graveyard and sleeps in the earth with dead babies. How dare you steal my Easter egg and then present it so sloppily? Just so. Okay, I'm trying to get on the same train as you, Nick. This is the only character, except for maybe Mithras for other reasons, that just snatched some emotion out of me, right? Now, I like to think of myself as a manly man, a big, strong fella. I almost moistened my eyeball a little bit for Violet Mary. Like, because when you see her picture and, like, you see her in this dress and they describe how, despite her appearances, she's commanded all of this respect right because she's so good at her job and then to know that that person goes to the graveyard to sleep in uh, in their low places but not just by themselves you know what, with why the is most it said? horrible why is thing it said? because it's the you find solace in the most awful thing that happened in somebody else's life because you feel that's the closest you'll ever get to the life you thought you were going to have. That hurt me. That hurt me. So Violet's you're saying Violet does it because she wanted kids or that she would have been a good mom? or What's the reason Violet does it? 
I, I think that the book says that she wanted kids. To me, it's it's a lingering sensation of loss where nobody else gets to see her weak. Which is which might be the same thing. Right, but if I'm her and I've worked that that hard to achieve her, her status and position, and I'm I'm I've got this honor attached to me, I don't want anybody to see me low. Like there's something. But, I but what's interesting is that you don't know the reason exactly. Like when you say you're affected, you're affected because it's someone trying to hide their weakness. Which I'm like, hmm. All right, I don't know if that necessarily is a tearjerker. To, but, and, and, but Mike, you are a manly man, so I understand to you. Oh, her weakness is showing, and then the tear eyes moisten up. Um, <laughs> um, or is it that there's these these babies in the ground? She goes to hug them, but why? Why does Violet care about these dead children? I'm not sure. It, it might be. It, it might just be because she wanted to be a mommy. It might be that simple. It it, it doesn't. I did. I didn't think about it. I didn't think about it. To me, what I what I focused on was the fact that. She's attained so much and still finds herself falling that low because of, of what she will never have. So I feel you're fishing, maybe. Nick, Nick why does she do it? it she does it be, she does she, because she wanted to have children, right? It, it says very plainly that she absolutely wanted to have a child. So here's, here's, here's what it says. She, she will earth melt down into the grave, right? And she will, uh, she will cradle this child to sleep with her. As as the sun rises, uh, while she sings, uh, you know, like nursery rhymes to it. So can you imagine that being the wino who's who's pissing on a grave in the cemetery, and and suddenly uh, all you hear, like down deep below the ground, is this tiny nursery rhyme going on, which seems to be coming from beneath a beneath a, a, a tombstone for a child. That's terrifying. To me, this highlights the fact that a lot of the characters in this book are upholding a Victorian theme. Sunrise, sunset, meaning you you present this greatness, but everyone has a weakness. Yep. And what makes a great character is that you do have a weakness. Yep. That shouldn't be a shocker to anybody. Every great character worth remembering had a weakness that made them human, that you can empathize with and thus understand better. And that's, and that's what she does. The part, that creepy element, of its children, and then you know, learn around to do it. This is this is where I, I I see it differently. They say it's because she wanted a child in life. I say she's one bad night from hunting children exclusively. That it's that it's not it's not just that she's drawn to it. She's obsessed with the idea of it. You're because disgusting. Before that, How dare you? Before that, because <laughs> before that, where is this idea that she was the family woman, looking to get married, want to have kids, want to have all that? It wasn't. She was a socialite, damn near dilettante, going about being about the scene and doing everything else. Well, suddenly, now it's all oh, I boohoo to kids. Is it boohoo to kids or is it uh, crunching much? Because the beast said so. I don't know. It depends. I read differently. Just saying. <laughs> and you Let's know start. what? Following up on that, he's not wrong. And this is one of the things to highlight. And this is another. This is where I take away my my gem from Violet Mary is all vampires and. Think about everything you've been taught, right, folks? You've been reading this. You have your idea for your clan. Cool. I get superpowers and everything. I know there's a beast somewhere in the background. But there's always... This is a game of personal horror, right? What is the personal horror? And I'm going to state my my trick as an ST as to what gives it personal horror. Every vampire has an affectation in one shape or another that they draw to. 
we see it in V5 as touchstones. We see it in Requiem as touchstones. But now knowing that, right, and you start thinking like, oh, yeah, those things do exist. This is her touchstone. And Bob is not wrong outside of that as well, because it's her touchstone right now. And it literally is one bad night before it starts becoming her favorite prey. Right? This sounds familiar. Don't Gentrue also have favorite prey as well? Favorite prey as well? Hmm. Isn't that an affectation for that particular blood for that particular clan slash bloodline? And that helps further define not only the character, but that particular person's beast. There's so that that nugget is just continuously growing um, with so much story potential in there. And now that you have that in the back of your mind, you it, her picture just becomes just that much more tragic. And and to add on to that, one last thing from my perspective of Violet Mary is she Life has its way of, of giving people a shitty stick, and that's the one that she had. But in the Victorian era, her etiquette, that one commodity, it do, goes to show that no matter how messed up things may or may not be in terms of, like, so long as you present the face and so long as you have that, you'll you'll shoot up. And that's exactly what she does have. But, yeah, uh, don't munch on babies, folks. I'm just going to say that out. Nope. So. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah, uh, we got, uh, we got, we got two more guys we got to get to before, uh, before we get, we get getting on. And that's, uh, that's Teddy Bangs and Donnie C. Uh, who wants to take him? <laughs> I mean, I can, all right. Um, <laughs> so Theo Bill we're familiar with. Um, I'm sure his, his origin story, uh, exists in some other text, but this is the first time I can recall reading it. He's from Mississippi. Uh, Bell is actually the last name of his former slave master. Um, but in general, his sire recognized his mental faculties, um, his obvious requisite bruja passion for a cause. He was kind of born into one of those, couldn't help it. Um, and in the, in the book, we see his arrival to, to London and his, his adjustment period. And it was, it's very, it's very interesting to see, uh, this tall, um, handsome black man resenting his place in court, but choosing to stay uh, because he's learning and he's growing and he's getting some of what he wants. So he stays right here in the middle of all of these people that he despises. Um, and it's it felt familiar. It felt, you know, I, I resembled that remark. Anyway, uh, <laughs> there's also this sire... And I, I feel like you can't really talk about these two separately because um, you don't you don't I don't care about Don Cerro without Theo Bell, at least not as much. Um, <laughs> Don Cerro is a ridiculously powerful Bruja um, who is I, I think he's he is a Justicar or he's being looked at for becoming one. And he's got these these dual streaks of. Uh, that natural rebellion and a, a, a measure of altruism, right? Because he doesn't seem like the sort of bruja who's trying to shake the foundations because he feels they need to be shaken. Um, but he does like nobly pursue a cause here and there. Um, the, his background lists him as a as a rabid and effective sabbat hunter as far away as the west coast of the United States. Um, but it also, and most importantly to me, um, describes his, his genuine care and concern for, for, for Theo's development, right? And it, it makes sense that Theophilus Bell becomes Teddy Bangs, who we all know and love with Shotgun and the Harley, later um, with this, with this well-educated, 
um, very, very capable and experienced Camarilla tutor who, who went and pulled him off a, uh, a plantation elsewhere. It, it, it was good stuff. I love. Oh, I'm not going to pretend you don't have things to say, Bob. Go ahead, Bob. Sure. <laughs> like, I don't, it's just me. I, I, I don't like it because I'm like, when I get to Theo Bell, what's his relevance in this book? What whatsoever is Don Cero's relevance to Theo Bell or Theo Bell here in the Victorian story? It doesn't even fit the Victorian theme to me, right? What cool story of a cult or anything else in social hierarchy etiquette is he going to establish to make it a standout? And so that's my question to you guys. Where in the book does it make it a compelling story that he's even here? They they do try to loop Theo in with some stuff that we're probably going to get to when we talk about the conspiracies if we if we get there um, with. I don't remember if it's precisely the investigation into Mithras's court or if it's more generally um, that other perspective Archon giving him what, what to me reads like tryouts. No, no, no. He's uh, he's, he's absolutely right. Uh, that, that, that is precisely where they do bring and loop in Don Saro and Theo Bell. But I, I think to, to Bob's point, could it have been any other uh, potential Justicars or Archons that get brought in? Does it have to be? Theo Bell and Don Cero. I don't know. I don't think so either. I think uh, it might have been a bit sloppy to to bring Theo Bell in here. I know he's definitely a fan favorite, and I know people were excited to see him in here. Yeah, and I, I think I think they kind of had to. I, I, I assume whatever book he was in before this, they listed his birthday, and somebody would have been disappointed if we were in the 19th century and we didn't at least get a hint of where Teddy Banks came from. Don Cero without Theo Bell, does he hold weight? That's the reverse. If you remove Theo Bell from it entirely, is Don Cero a compelling character for the Victorian age? Not, not to me. I don't think so. I think he's out of time, and simply because he belongs in the Spanish run, Reconquista where he was written for, right? That's, uh, that's, that's where the Spanish Don belongs, uh, who's a rip-roar and bruja revolutionary. Yeah, and I agree to that as well. Um... You might try to paint him as the adventurer, or people might try to paint him to the adventurer, because once again, there there is something that we spoke about during the Victorian Age Vampire about adventure being a big thing. But what will, sadly enough, but what's going to take away from his his time in the spotlight is you have a character in the form of, you know, General Sir Arthur Halesworth, who is a gangrel who was in the Queen's Army, became a general, earning knighthood, and you know, still fought and did things. So when you have a character that is much more aligned with the times and especially that much more relevant, you know, that's, that's a key word relevant to, to this book. Yeah. Um, sadly, you know, he does become overshadowed by characters that already do exist um, in it. So outside of it, you know, unfortunately, Don Cero. <laughs> that's actually, it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful example. Yeah. Uh, General Sir Arthur Halesworth is the, uh, is the, the rip roaring gangrel uh, on, on this side. If, if you don't count the uh, Nathaniel Simmons, uh, but he's our he's our badass sheriff that we were talking about earlier, but didn't mention, and and he is a he's a perfect candidate who fits precisely into the theme and setting, uh, and I think that just bringing that dichotomy front and center, it's a, it's a good choice. So we're going to move into chapter four, which is storytelling, and and what this does is what we have done is is we have picked individual beautiful pieces. Of uh, of these plots that that we're just gonna go over briefly um, before we uh, we carry on into into chapter five and then the and then the the end of the podcast. 
But the first one I kind of wanted to, to look at, because I think I think we have uh, something we're talking about here is the uh, the case of the unwelcome guest, which which is the title of it. They kind of made them sound like like a uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes books. But this one is uh, it, it talks about how they have Toreador coming in and, and applying pressure on Demithras, which is. Uh, something that's kind of been a theme of, of what's going on in into the, the course of Avalon itself. Uh, so far to the point where they brought in a Toreador Justicar, Violetta, to, to come in and uh, and observe Mithras's court at, at this point in time. And uh, and they, they brought in the aspirant to Justicarhood, Don Cero, and his protege, Theo Bell. And they also have uh, Rory McAndrews, a, a functional archon, who's kind of digging into the dirt of, of, of what's going on here. And, and the big question is, why are they doing this? And though Mithras has followed many of the tenants of, of the Camarilla at this point, he's not officially uh, recognized himself as part of the Camarilla, uh, which is uh, which is enough to give the Camarilla pause because while he's not working against them, he's also not fully in line uh, so they have all these little pieces that are slowly moving into the uh, into the courts and, and kind of taking a look at it and what is a, a haphazard moment here. And uh, it w- with Mithras suddenly coming back, nobody's quite sure how anything's going to play out. But what you do know is everybody's watching and everybody's got their pieces in place. What do you guys think? I think about the same. Actually, if anything at all, and I, you folks can't see it, but I grimace a little bit. This is the only time Don Cero actually becomes relevant. I'll tell you why. Whereas before we were talking about the great adventurer being uh, Halesworth, Don Cero is an interloper in here. He's a person who's not native to, to this country. He's not native to these particular courts. And so now what you're presenting is in our house, we present this face. In our house, we have our own particular shadow war. And here you got some guy who's about to go ahead and try to turn over rocks to see what he finds underneath. Um, if anything at all, that's the only relevance I currently see there. But it does add to this particular story hook for those of you who want to use it. It's not something we haven't seen before um, in terms of walking to someone's house and trying to see what's happening in a whodunit type of situation, especially when it comes to um, all these nice little shadow plays being made. But um, it's a good basis to start. It definitely is a good basis to start. Yeah, it just – it put the pause in me when I when – I, re- I, I might have mentioned this before. How can they cross this man? Right? Like I understand the Camarilla needs to – work together and as a group maintain its borders it seems like with as much time as he spends out of town Mithras is the kind of ruler I would just leave alone and that's at least half because I've read his sheet (laughs) 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 because with he shows an incredible amount of restraint based on all of the irritants that are present and the fact that he vampires anyway and the fact that there's like this tense push pull but is he gonna be really one of us or does he really not care and who's manipulating who like it's fun I just don't see it like I feel like in my game if I was running this scenario there would be this tense balance that I would justify in my mind and then the second week of game a player would do a thing and Mithras would just off 20 or 30 vampires. It'd, it'd be fun. Go ahead, Bob. Wait, let me paint a picture for you. 
Mithras's only rival on this whole island is John D. John D is the Tremere fifth gen rival to Mithras 100%. And he's the only one because Mithras did rattle the sabers and try to wipe out the Tremere and get them completely gone from London yep. because of the Tremere and the power they would have to rival his own. And the Tremere faked their, their destruction to become something else. And, and that's in the shadows here. But when you're talking about the Torador, I ask you a question. This plot opens up where it's like a Torador thing to shake the thing. The Torador don't ever do a goddamn thing unless there's another clan backing their play first. That's what yes, goes on. Yes. So this is no different. Now, if you're Mithras, it's because you're a Ventru who's easily duped because all Ventru are. As long as we walk up, take a knee, and bow, you think we're on your side. And that's that's just, it's just what Ventru are. They're, they're that way. They're built that way. An entire clan of people <laughs> who you just, yes, my lord, no, my lord, and they never see the blade coming. And then they go, at two, bow, kiss. And I'm like, you're damn right. Get him dealt with. And this is and this is no different. And when I when I think of Mithras, Mike, and I respect as you have him, I often wonder, yeah, um, they wrote so many ways for Mithras to get toppled, to just yep. get done in. And I think that's what they were screaming. Hey, this guy's done a lot, but is a great person to topple to see where the pieces fall and how it goes, at least at this point in the Victorian book. Ignore the V5 revitalization, we love Mithras. That's that's another podcast, but that's the uh, but that's that's where we're at here. And we look at it at this point. Well, Mithras has done everything, including having tea with Hakim. Can we put the the Dunzos to him? I mean, the guy's ready for bed. Put him there. And any and, and him being absent is an excuse for any player group to come in and shake it up, and kind of establish themselves to see what would happen. And what happens if you're Mithras and you come back? Oh, I came back and a new prince is player X, and a Torador seemed to have won. Well, the danger of the Torador are what? They work with mortals, and they have those mortal trends unlock. So there's your whole city and what they know and what goes on. So what do I do to come back for it? And I think it's a very interesting block because when the Torter get involved, things get very dangerous when it comes to control and to who manipulates and who holds what. But they will only do it if they martially have a clan to protect them. Remember that. Well, uh, it's actually a really good point because the next beautiful nugget that it brings up in here is that... Uh, there's a hidden rival. Uh, and, and we don't really get to know how much of a rival this guy is, uh, this this Baron Shawlins, um, which, oh my God, sounds kind of Cajun. <laughs> but um, this guy has, uh, he, he started putting a, a ton of these uh, bad influencers in, into, uh, into Mithras's, court um whether it's just like agitators that come in to to shake things up and make a mess or whether it's actual people that that he's got outright in in the center of intrigue that are uh working as uh as new fandangled best friends to uh to lady anne and the the weird thing about it is is they they think that that this guy's got enough agents in play to potentially destabilize Mithras's rule in these trying times. Now, uh, a player group could come in and, uh, and just start knocking dominoes until something, something major happens. But, but we all know the iron grip of Mithras is, uh, is strong. That leads to questions. I mean, I think one of the things that, two pieces of things right one is 
the way they set it up is like Shalins has been given this recognition by the camp to be like, hey, you could do this. We got you, buddy. In no way, shape, or form in the history of vampires and history of learning what it's been like through a dark ages through your sires, 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 do you ever get any type of happy ending knowing that this is going to end well? If someone backs your play and then you mess up, they're turning the face. They were expendable asset to begin with, right? So as it is, you're, you're going to be playing that suicide mission. But I don't know. This, this reads a little bit more of the same as we were talking about there. Um, if anything at all, this going into this particular section where you're part of that power movement is the same thing where it's like, all right, folks, you wanted your chance at the big, here it is. Um, and I think one of the things that we definitely should preface, at least on my particular end, is that we played Vampire long enough to kind of respect the characters and where to come. When we dive into it, we dive into it. And this is the reason you're listening to us. So our perspective, um, while we know that some players have delusions of grandeur, or they do have that thing where you could definitely topple God in one way, shape, or another, we take a look at it and go like, where's the story going to go? And does it make sense? Because if you do, now what? When we usually come to that perspective of like, once you reach the top, once there's that one thing, remember, all good stories come to an end. You topple Mithras, now what? What are you going to do from here? Um, and so my my initial reaction is to go like, all right, you're going to continue with this particular hook. And then what are you going to do? So that that's my perspective on it. Yep. Yeah, I uh, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, I, I kind of want to, I want to save the next one for Bob, because I think really it uh, is the most intriguing one for him in particular, which is the, the Tremere Gambit of, uh, of building a Melk Chantry headed by Albert Mellon. <laughs> oh man, do I have so much to say. I think it's um, awesome in the book. Read it. Use it if you like. So good. Mock Tremere up it. Amazing. Okay, Done. okay, okay. Okay. I, I hear you. I, I hear you. Maybe it's uh maybe it's not as amazing as it could be, right? Maybe it's uh maybe it's a tongue in cheek, maybe like an, an internal joke uh for the uh for Clan Tremere to try and trip up this guy and get him somehow to violate the the first. But uh I how about something that you that you can talk on, which is Jack the Ripper and and how that the interplay of just having that influence in this city tugs at the not just the very heart of the masquerade um but also other supernaturals coming into play and and how things kind of look with uh with what is a new wave of hunters uh coming in that are drawn to this type of thing specifically i think across the board jack the ripper is more than compelling uh at this point you can make a whole entire game uh focused on bringing down old jack right and the cool thing about it is is that uh, the guy was real these things happen Mm -hmm. So people, there's tons of speculation, there's tons of material to pull through, there's tons of angles to go at it, but when you add the World of Darkness template over it, it gets much darker. You know, it could have mm -hmm. been a minion of the worm, right? What if it was just a normal mortal? Yeah. What do you do then? What do you do then? And then when you think of the theme of Victorian age where madness is, in, is the thing that they're discovering now, some guy to some doctor, whoever, decided that they're now going to attack prostitutes in such a savage way for unknown reasons and, and they, they they just do that and look at the world of darkness you know a vampire is going well what monster is this we can't have this this draws attention we need to figure it out and if they go to investigate it just to learn nope this this is a normal guy how would they handle that guy what if you get to him and he turns out he's a werewolf right that that's disturbing in and of itself or any other creature you have but i often find 
the most the scariest thing you can do is to encounter someone when it's immortal. Like I like the idea of Jack the Ripper in the in this book being a human doctor who legitimately um, is taking a kind of a page out of Hitler's book before that's a thing. And the fact is, is that there are so many people in London and there's so much destitute and he needs to work on diseases and the organs and how they function. Who better to collect diseases like a Petri dish than the whores of London? And so he's been targeting them for his own experiments and, and allegedly to forward mankind. That his idea of the pursuit of medicine is going to be something altruistic and amazing. And he's so close to these necessary breakthroughs, but he's got to go through a little muck to get there. And yes, this is a disturbed individual, but how would you morally argue with that person as a vampire? How are you uh, an, an immortal who just, you, you feed the live and often kill in a frenzy or could kill in a frenzy. And you're just doing that to just exist. He's doing it to better everybody else's survival, the ability to cure these other women that he doesn't choose. And that becomes a lesson unto itself. We're talking today where medical science is buying bodies, right? They're, they're buying corpses yep. to open them yep. up and study and to, to get in there too. So this isn't far from the mark for someone to take that next step, if they even did that. But when you're the ST and you sit there and have this option, it's, it's one of those things where do I make it the very worst, most powerful villain there ever was? Or do I make it so simple it'd be nearly impossible to find in a sea of people? Because if you're a vampire not researching Jack the Ripper, like Nick said, there's hunters looking for this guy. And which means there are mortals looking for him. And if they stumble across you during this look, you're in violation of your own traditions yep. just to pursue the same villain. So that becomes tricky and very, very interesting. And there's a lot you can do there uh, with that. The other aspect is, um, is to make the person, I mean, you can go easy and you can go, it's a Sabat member. It's a Sabat member in a weird right. We'll make it a Bali. There's so much that fit this character easily. Um, and let's not forget, just the, the same old, old, you can be like, oh, he's an occultist. You know, he's Aleister Crowley's left hand, right? And that's, <laughs> Which is you know, an, an icky left hand. Icky left let's hand. be realistic. Icky, the sticky icky left hand. And, that's, <laughs> and that's, that's all my take on it. But when you think about the themes it hits, definitely hits horror, hits mystery. Um, it's going to hit that madness peak. It's also going to hit that morality pull that you expect in a Victorian age. And which to me, the cool part about being a vampire in a Victorian age is there's a certain level you're supposed to kind of disregard humanity while still maintaining it, right? In public, you simply do not attack your vessel. You don't do that. That's untoward. You seduce, you convince to go with you, but you do not give in to your hunger. However, the moment they're in your haven, you savage them because you're hungry, don't you? get them, give in, it's a give and take. How do you feed, show me? And that level of, I don't know, that dance with with morality, with Jack the Ripper to pursue or to not, uh, leaves the door open for a lot of players to make some interesting decisions about who they are yep. and see how it affects. I totally agree. The next chapter, chapter five, is very short. It's less than 10 pages. Um, but really what it does is it summarizes a lot of the concepts we've already seen in the main book uh, for Victorian age. And that is uh, the different themes, you know, the, uh, the idea of scientific versus supernatural ideas about, uh, you know, the new center of the empire being the British empire and how you bring in those otherworldly influences in, into your chronicle now. There's things of, of bringing the city, London specifically, as a, as a central character in this game and, and having ideas of like uh, bringing in fog 
uh, to build mood and things like that. Uh, the way that society always fights against itself between the upper class and the lower class should also be a characteristic trait of the city. There's even uh, an idea as London itself is uh, analogous to a vampire and how it drains the uh, you know the lifeblood of the uh, of the lower class. It, it's interesting stuff. You know, take a read at it. It's definitely not worth throwing off to the side. But we'll uh, we'll leave that mystery up to you guys. This has been a pretty good episode. It, it's great to see Bob back on the uh, back in his seat. And uh, just for everybody listening, I appreciate you putting up with me being uh, sort of in repose. I just want everybody to know I'm healthy. But yes, still in the hospital for 14 days now. And uh, it's road to recovery. It's not doom and gloom. Um, I'm going to make it healthy, obviously. But uh, that's why I sound so strange from where I'm coming from right now. And uh, we're not real 100% on the hospital's Wi-Fi on whether or not I could chime in as often as I can or lead it. <laughs> so I want to thank you, Nick, uh, for stepping up and kind of being host for the first half and handling it right now. That's that's definitely something that uh, I wasn't expecting. Um, but you volunteered beautifully and stepped up as a the whole team stepped up, I think. From the bottom of my heart, thank you guys. And I uh, thank our listeners for obviously supporting us through this and still, you know, maintaining that level of respect. And then a lot of people asked that you didn't know, and my, my heart goes back to you for reaching out and asking what's going on. I'm healthy, folks. I'm good. It's just uh, listen to your doctors, and uh, that's who gets you healthy. And that's that's it. Nothing, <laughs> nothing deadly, right? Just healing is healing. So I appreciate everybody. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, and, and hopefully we'll have Bob again next week from uh... – from his uh, his hidden location with his uh, with his tin can microphone uh, once again uh, for the rest of you guys I, I appreciate you showing up and uh, and joining in on the party we'll be back at it again next week with the Victorian Age Companion thank you for listening to our 25 years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast if you liked what you heard please reach out and let us know on Twitter at 25 years of VTM at our email info at 25yearsvtm.com on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash 25yearsvtm or on our website www.25yearsvtm.com If you would like to support us we can be found at patreon.com slash 25 years of vampire the masquerade